Our sermon text this evening is going to come from Matthew chapter 4. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn there to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you're using the church Bible, that's found on page 809. Page 809, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Thus far, the word of God. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Father in heaven, we do come before you this evening asking that your spirit would be here in this place, filling us, using your word, driving it home into our hearts. Father, we need you. We need you to speak to us, for we are empty. We need you to fill our hands. Our our hearts are empty. We need you to fill us to fill us with all good things, to fill us with truth and righteousness, to show us Jesus in your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, clear away the obstacles and barriers that are within us that would prevent us from seeing him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thinking about this passage, growing up in church, the way that I often uh, heard it uh, preached and discussed and used in Bible studies and um, uh, other venues was to to see it as a manual for resisting temptation. You know, when you're tempted, do what Jesus does. Quote scripture like that, you know, at at the devil, at the enemy. Um, I remember someone telling me that uh, memorizing scripture is like storing up ammunition for a battle, right? Uh, Pity the person who only has a few bullets. Um, Is it wrong to memorize scripture? No, it's not wrong. Don't don't come away from this this sermon saying, well, he told me don't memorize scripture. That's not what I'm saying. It's good to memorize scripture. You should do it. Um, It's a legitimate application to our own day. but, But I would strongly urge you to accept and recognize that that's not the main point 
of this passage. The main point is not to see this as an example of quoting scripture at the devil. To make that the main point of this passage would be a little bit like um, Wimbledon was recently. So it'd be like giving you a few uh, lessons in tennis and then pitting you against Andy Murray. Right? Doesn't matter how great your swing is, you will not last long. You will, you will, you will not last, uh, I, w- I know I would not last uh, more than a few moments against Andy Murray. It would be ace, 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 and the match would be over. Satan has been doing this for a long time, and he's a formidable foe. He's been tempting, deceiving, leading people astray ever since, as we learned about this morning, ever since the beginning, since the Garden of Eden. And to put it mildly, He's pretty good at it. He has a really good track record. He knows our weaknesses. He knows human nature. He knows our blind spots. He knows the areas where we pride ourselves on being strong, and he he twists that. Uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters is a a magnificent, if you've never read it, it's a magnificent um, uh, discussion of how Satan uses both our weaknesses and our strengths, to try to deceive and destroy us. He knows how to manipulate the shame that you feel over past regrets and mistakes, over sins of your past, so you give in again and again and again. He knows what you feel about yourself, about perhaps your appearance or about your performance at work, about failures, about, what, again, what you think your strengths are. He knows how to feed your sense of depression so that like uh, the great hymn writer, William Cooper, you feel like you've been abandoned by God, perhaps. And if you're here this evening, friends, and, and, and you're not a Christian, uh, I'm glad that you're here. But know that Jesus says Satan is involved in your life too. He's the one who snatches away the word and who tries to keep you from receiving it with joy and gladness, hearing and believing. See, our most important need isn't a manual to defeat temptation. Our most important need is for Emmanuel to come and to defeat the tempter. That's what's going on here in this passage. That's the main point. In this passage, Jesus decisively defeats the devil. I wasn't necessarily intending both the morning and evening sermons to sort of tie in together like this, but that's how it worked out. Jesus overcomes every temptation in order to liberate us from the deception and despair that the tempter inflicts upon us. And we're going to see how Jesus does that under two headings this evening. And the first is this, Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. In other words, Jesus is reenacting that first encounter between Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent. And how do I know that? Well, first of all, note that this temptation is purposeful. This temptation is purposeful. This wasn't an accidental meeting between Jesus 
and Satan in the wilderness. Look again at Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Jesus had just been baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. And if you look back at chapter 3, verse 16, we see Jesus being anointed by the Spirit, who, who descends on Jesus from heaven like a dove, coming down and resting upon him. Jesus' baptism was the start of his public ministry. And here at his baptism, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him, empowering him for the task that he's about to undertake for the next three years. And what's the first thing that the Spirit does? The very first thing the Spirit does is lead Jesus into the wilderness to seek out the devil. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. All right. Mark's gospel uses even stronger language than what Matthew uses. In, in Mark chapter 1, it says that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus is entering the wilderness to find the devil and be tempted by him. Um, it's a little bit like if we were Ukraine, driving a tank into Russia, right? This is a massive escalation of war, right? Uh, or it, it, it would be a little bit, putting it on a smaller scale, it would be a little bit like um, walking into a bar owned by the mafia and going up to the bartender and saying, I want to see the boss, the big boss, right? Show me this. <laughs> it would end up like the Godfather rather quickly. Um, see, this is what the, but this is what Jesus did. Jesus came specifically to invade enemy territory and to take back what's rightfully his. This is what the Apostle John meant in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. This is why Jesus came. This is what God promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, that one day there would come a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, as we heard about this morning. And what you see Jesus doing here is revealing himself for who he is, that he is the seed of the woman, that he has come to do battle with the serpent, and he has come to set his people free, to reverse the curse, to loose the shackles of sin and shame that you and I experience each and every day to declare that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Notice also the place of the temptation, the place of the temptation. Adam and Eve were tempted in a garden paradise. But when Satan came to them, tempted them, and they fell, what happened? They were cast out of the garden. They were cast out into the wilderness, into a wasteland where there is where evil lurks and roams into the wasteland east of Eden, and there they were barred from coming back into the presence of God. So what does Jesus do? We'll look at Matthew 4, verse 1 again. All right, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Being led by the Holy Spirit then, Jesus leaves the promised land. Jordan River is the boundary of the promised land. 
He leaves the promised land and goes out into the wilderness. He's like a, he's like a, a, a father who, who goes into a forest at night to seek his daughter who's lost and doesn't think twice about it because it's his daughter and he wants her back. He, in the same way, Jesus goes out to do battle with the devil, to bring his lost people back, who are wandering like sheep, back into the presence of God. Notice also the pattern of the temptation, too. The pattern of the temptation. When the serpent crept into the garden, what did he whisper in Eve's ear? Did God really say You are not to eat of any tree in the garden. Now, here's the thing. God had told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any tree in the garden except the one. It's just the one that they could not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan's trying to sow doubt into their minds about whether God really does have their best intentions at heart, whether God is truly to be trusted whether he's faithful to them and is wanting their best. And Satan here follows the exact same line of attack with Jesus. Look at Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. Now, why would Satan say that? Right. Didn't, did he not know who Jesus was? Well, if you go back again to the end of Matthew chapter 3, we get... God declaring from heaven, Matthew 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. At his baptism, the Father declared before witnesses, before all who were gathered there, that Jesus is his beloved son, that he's well pleased with him. But Satan is whispering in Jesus' ear, is that true? Is that true? Do you really believe that, Jesus? Are you sure? And the answer, of course, is yes. It's obvious. But then what does Satan say? Oh, you are the son of God. Of course you are. Well, this should be easy then. Prove it. Prove it. Turn these stones into bread. You are hungry, right? So just feed yourself. Feed yourself, Jesus. Again, I find it fascinating that this temptation, this first temptation is, again, about food. All right. It all comes down to a man's stomach, it seems like. Jesus, though, unlike Adam and Eve, he resists the snare. He resists the temptation. He doesn't give in. Even though after 40 days of fasting, you can imagine he's just barely clinging to life. And it doesn't stop there. With each temptation, Satan raises the stakes, as it were. He raises the pressure until Jesus is standing on a mountain, being offered the world on a silver platter if he'll just bend his tottering knees just a little bit. won't take much, Jesus. Just, just bend a little bit, bow down, and this could all be yours. Yet Jesus continues to say no, to resist 
temptation. Why? And this is the fourth thing to note here. Where does he get the power to resist temptation? Why doesn't he give in? Or to put it positively, why does he choose to obey? Well, here's the answer. He knew who he was in the sight of his father. He's his father's beloved son, and his father is pleased with him. We get this. If you have children, um, if, if your children perhaps haven't grown up yet, but they will, Lord willing, uh, or if you're, you're, you're a parent uh, or a grandparent, you, you, you've seen this with young children, what happens when you praise them? I remember once uh, my daughter was, uh, who's now a bit older, but she was at the time uh, three years old, and uh, I was upstairs. She had uh, come and given me something, something I needed, um, and, and I turned to her and I said, thank you for being such a good girl. And she just, it wasn't much. But she, she giggled, her, her eyes brightened, she, she smiled uh, and, and beamed and, and ran off to tell uh, my wife what I had said to her. It doesn't take much. We, we, we've seen this. We know this. We've heard this. We want to be delighted in. Whether you know it or not, you want someone to be pleased with you. You and I want to be loved. And friends, so often we do feel in our daily lives, so often our, the world reminds us and says to us, you don't matter or you don't measure up. You haven't done enough, whether it be your boss, whether it be your spouse, whether it be advertisements telling us you need to be thinner. You need to make more money. You need to have a bigger house, better car. You need to have a better, uh, better marks on your exams. We don't measure up. But in this temptation, friends, Jesus has ringing, goes out into the wilderness with these words ringing in his ears. You are my beloved son. And in you, I am well pleased. That, friends, is why he could withstand temptation. Because he had the love of his Father in heaven flowing through him. He knew who he was in the eyes of his Father. And if you are here this evening, friends, and you are trusting in Christ, the same could be said of you. The Spirit says to you, you are the Father's beloved children. And in you, I am well pleased, no matter what anyone else says about you or how you feel about your regrets and mistakes in your life. You are my beloved son. This is what it means to trust your Father in heaven with a childlike trust. Jesus was so filled with the pleasure and love of his Father that he could see the pleasures and attractions of the world for the counterfeits that they are, that they will not satisfy you, that they're empty, that they're vain. And the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, 
He learned obedience through what he suffered. And what did Jesus suffer? Well, Hebrews 2, verse 18 tells us, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And so to you Christians here this evening, here is the power you need to resist temptation. It's found in Jesus, your representative, the last Adam who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And if you're trusting in him, Paul says in Ephesians 1, you are in the beloved. You have been united with Christ by faith. And so when God looks at you, he sees his beloved son, a son with whom he is well pleased. So Jesus is the new Adam, the last Adam. That leads to our second point. Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is true Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, well, Matthew wants us to see that the events uh, of Jesus' life reenact not just Adam and Eve, but also the history of Israel as a whole. Uh, We catch a glimpse of this in verse 2. In verse 2, when Matthew says that Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, who else spent time in a wilderness for a length of time involving the number 40? It was Israel, the nation, the people of Israel. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, in the exodus, on their way out of Egypt, going to the promised land. They spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested. And do you remember that they, how they complain once they reach uh, the wilderness, once they get out there? They complain about food. It's all about food again. They want to go back to Egypt because they miss the meat pots. And they miss the bread and the vegetables. Um, and the con- connection only gets clearer when you look at the context as well. In chapter 1, Matthew's genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham. To the, to the father of the Jewish nation. Jesus is that true son of promise. Jesus is born in Bethlehem as the shepherd king. He's a greater ruler even than David. But to escape the jealousy of, of King Herod, who, like Pharaoh, butchers the babies of Bethlehem, Jesus and his family leave the promised land to find safety, uh, as Jacob and his family did in Egypt. And you know the first time? where God calls someone his son. It's in the book of Exodus as well. Exodus 4, verses 21 and 22, God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Hundreds of years ago, reflecting on the Exodus, the prophet Hosea um, uh, says, out of, uh, God, speaking to the prophet Hosea, says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And in the book of Matthew, uh, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew quotes that very verse, except this time, it's about Jesus. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And how did Israel leave Egypt? What did they have to pass through? They had to pass through the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, God delivered his son through water. And then the Spirit of God, the, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, led them into the wilderness, leading God's son to face testing 
and trial. It's the exact same imagery we get here in Jesus' baptism and temptation. He goes through the water. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, it's, it's, like, a, it's like take two. It's a redo. And, and just think about that for a second. We know what it's like to want a fresh start. We know what it's like to desperately want to redo something in our lives. Maybe it's the piano recital from when you were nine. Maybe uh, it was that speech that you had to give in university, that group project that went horribly wrong. Maybe it was your wedding day, which, although it should have been a day of joy, turned out to be one of the worst days of your life for various reasons. And you desperately wish you could all just start over and try it again, try it afresh. Maybe it's something even bigger than that. Maybe it's the way you raised your children. Uh, If you're here and you're older, maybe you regret the way that you raised your kids. They've wandered from the faith or um, you don't have good relationship with them. And you wish you could go back and do it again. Maybe you trusted Jesus later in life. And you look back now at the years, maybe even decades, wasted. And you wish you could get those years back. You feel like you lost them. But here's the thing. We need far more, friends, than just a second chance. A second try to get it right because we'll end up failing again. We need more than just a second chance, because even with Israel, after God showed them, gave them chance after chance after chance and showed them grace upon grace upon grace, giving them abundantly more than they were asking, they still complained. They still complained and grumbled, asking, are we there yet? I'm hungry. It's like a child on a long trip. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can we go back? In Deuteronomy 8, which we read earlier, after spending 40 years in the wilderness, Israel is finally on the cusp of entering the promised land. But before they do, Moses tells them what those years of wandering were for. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Did they pass the test? Well, the answer is found in the moldering bones of an entire generation in the wilderness of Israelites who grumbled and complained. God's son, Israel, failed the test. And so God sent his true son as the Messiah, as the rescuer of his people, to succeed where his people have failed. Matthew 4, friends, is not an object lesson for how we can defeat temptation. It's a picture for us of the one who has defeated temptation. Jesus is far more than our example. He's our representative who passes every test through his radical obedience to his Father in heaven. When Satan comes to a starving Jesus and says, don't trust your Father, you've suffered long enough, just make these stones into bread, 
Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then in the second temptation, uh, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and, and dares him, throw yourself off, Jesus. Just, just, just take the leap of faith. Because after all, it's written. And then he quotes Psalm 91. Uh, he, will, his angel, he will send his angels to bear you up, lest you strike your foot upon a stone. It's in scripture, Jesus. Just show off a little bit. Take the leap. And with all these crowds around you, the temple was a busy place. This will be front page news. It'll be all over the BBC. Thousands of people will take pictures of this and put this on Instagram. Right? You'll be world famous tomorrow morning, Jesus. Just, just do it. Just do it, Jesus. And in the third temptation, Satan takes him to a high mountain and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and says, your kingdom come, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer in order to have it all, Jesus. Just listen to me. Here, it's right here, Jesus. You don't need to die in order to be exalted. I can do that for you right now. Satan is trying to derail Jesus' mission to, to get him off track, using all the tricks that worked on Israel and all the tricks that work on us today. But instead of giving in, Jesus remained steadfast, clinging to the promises of God's word and humbly submitting himself to his Father's will. And in doing so, he crushes the serpent under his feet. And I find it fascinating that the, the, the passage that Satan uses to quote against Jesus is Psalm 91, taking it out of context to convince Jesus to disobey his father. And we sang it earlier. We sang Psalm 91 earlier. But as a reminder, here's what verses 9 through 13 say. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And what's the next verse? Verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because Jesus made the Lord his dwelling place, his refuge, his fortress. He knew after he had suffered, by suffering on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin and my sin, he would trample the serpent underfoot. We need not fear Satan, friends, if you are trusting in Jesus this evening. We can resist the devil's schemes because we know that in Christ we are accepted and beloved of our Father in heaven. And as Paul says in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. And we pray that you would please bear us up, that you would strengthen us to resist temptation, to resist the the siren song of the world, because we know that 
we are your beloved children. And that in Christ, you say of us that we are well-pleasing to you, that you delight in us. For his sake, Lord, not for ours. And so, Father, please do give us the grace and strength and wisdom and discernment and, and, and courage to resist temptation this week and to rely solely on your word, submitting ourselves to your will, whatever that might look like for us. Help us, Lord, for we are weak. Bear us up. For in Christ, we are strong. We pray this in his name. Amen.